You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Check out the Modern Musicology podcast, where each week we talk about things like... What makes a great drummer? Our favorite rock documentaries. Songs we love by artists we don't love. Our favorite concert memories. Songs that should have been singles. And all of our favorite music from the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and now. Do not use Modern Musicology if you're allergic to it. Modern Musicology may produce itching, dizziness, vertigo, temporary blindness, or heart palpitations. Do not taunt Modern Musicology. Ask your doctor about switching to Modern Musicology. Hey everybody, welcome to this week's episode of Monster Attack, the podcast dedicated to old monster movies. And we are celebrating our 400th episode on this show. Unbelievable. Unbe- you know, when we when we started this, when Mark Maddox and I started this podcast back in 2016, we didn't know how far we'd go. We we really didn't. So many podcasts last about three or four years, but uh, we, we never thought uh, we might get up to, to 400 episodes, but we just kept plodding along. And, uh, you know, in spite of some major obstacles along the way, uh, including my heart attack uh, right after we started the uh, podcast, and then uh, leading up to uh, when we had to uh, shut down for three months and uh, and rebuild the studio or find a new place for the studio, uh, we managed to hang in there and we're still going and we've still got a great following here on Monster Attack. Now, you probably noticed the film that we're doing. I've been teasing this for a couple of months now, saying that we were going to do a very, very special film for our 400th episode. And, uh, you know, as we're doing from 1993, one of the, uh, early or one of the, uh, most recent movies that we have talked about on this show, Matinee, the Joe Dante film. And you might say, Jim, well, that's, that's not really a horror film. And, and it's not really a scary movie. It's not a science fiction. Uh, it's not anything other fantastical. So why did you pick Matinee? as your big 400th episode? And the answer is very simple. If you were to find one film that so encapsulated what it meant to be a monster kid, Joe Dante has captured it in this film. This film is an amazing film. This is one of those rare films that, you know, I go into IMDb all the time, and they constantly ask me, how do you rate this film? How do you rate this film? This is one of those rare films that I give a 10 to. You know, Mark and I have talked many times about this, that we rarely give, either one of us rarely give a 10 to a film, you know, because there's no such thing as a perfect film. But maybe it's an emotional pick. 
But this is, I think, nearly a perfect film when it comes to being a film about monster kids. And the fact that it's set during the uh, uh, Missiles of October in 1962, for those of us that were alive during that time period, it was very, it was a very unique time. It was a very unique time, but it was a very scary time. And we've talked about this uh, a little bit because of so many of these films that deal with the threat of nuclear war and the fear that, uh, you know, we're going to destroy ourselves, a fear that really hasn't gone away. It's still around with new threats that we're encountering now. You know, I'd, I'd sort of hoped we'd grown past it, uh, but we're, we're right back into the thick of it. It's almost like being in the 60s again. And monster movies, for many of us, were our escape. That's how we dealt with it. I was in second grade when the Cuban Missile Crisis occurred. Second grade. And as I've mentioned on many occasions, I have vivid memories of my friends and I being on the schoolyard, standing out in front of Herman Avenue Elementary School in Auburn, New York. A little shout out there to the old school. Waiting for the, uh, for the bell to ring for, you know, school to start for us to go in to our, our class and talking about nuclear bombs and nuclear missiles and how there were missiles aimed at us from Cuba that could instantly destroy us. Second grade at this, at this point, I was about a month away from turning eight years old. And, you know, it was me and other kids. We were like six, seven, eight years old, some, you know, nine or 10 years old. We were all talking about this. It'd be unheard of nowadays. But that's how things were back then. And monster movies, which I'd been introduced to a little more than a year before that, helped me escape. Really, how, actually, maybe not even a, a more than a year. I mean, it was about a year, maybe. It's, it's really hard to say. This is right about the time when I was really, really getting into monster movies and getting interested in building monster models and that sort of thing. So it's a little hazy on there, 61, 62, all around in there, when uh, when mom and dad showed me that first monster movie. And, of course, you know, last week we dedicated the show to mom and dad because it was their 70th wedding anniversary, or would have been. So this was the perfect follow-up from that and the perfect show to do for 400. Because you're not going to find a better film that shows you what it means to be a monster kid and what it was like and what it is like to be so into these movies. I've told a few friends along the way, as I do, if you want to know who I am, watch the movie Matinee. You know, it's not only a great look at, at what it means to be a monster kid, because one of the leads in this, played by Simon Fenton, plays a character by the name of Gene Loomis. We've got a, we've got a great cast to tell you about here in just a second. Simon uh, was born in 1976, so at this at this point, when they're, when they're making this film, he's about 17 years old. He was from London, known mainly, you know, his biggest film probably throughout his career was Through the Dragon's Eye, but I put this one right up there with it. He also was in Band of Brothers, one of my my favorite you know one, favorite uh, miniseries about World War II, still acting with us. And he captures this. I don't know if Simon was a monster kid or not, but he certainly understood what it meant to be a monster kid because he is so believable in this. So believable. It reminds, reminds me so much of myself and other friends of mine who were heavily into monsters and monster movies and sci-fis and all of that stuff. But this film is also 
in homage to all of those great films that came out in the 50s that we talked about that were influenced by by the threat of nuclear war. In fact, there are two movies within a movie in this uh, in this film. One of them, the legendary one, Mant, <laughs> which is an homage to about four or five remarkable films from the 50s, like Them, which we did last week, and and others where um, where a man is bitten by an ant that's radioactive and gets turned into an an ant, half man, half ant, Mant. <laughs> Now, there was no real monster movie called Matt, but I sort of wish somebody had made one. Because I know back then in 1962, if they'd made it, I would have been there to watch it. But this film is also an homage, not only to those great films, but it's an homage to one of the most unbelievable producer-directors of monster movies and horror movies. And he also did some big films. When I was growing up, William Castle... Was an, and it's a name we've thrown out around here a whole lot. William Castle did some incredible films. And he always had a gimmick. There was always something, you know. He had Emergo and Percepto and Hypnovision and and all of these great little gimmicks. He had the uh the buzzers in the on the seat cushions or, or you know, installed in the seat cushions and uh, during the the film The Tingler, and he would zap people. When uh, the Tingler supposedly was uh, roaming around in the theater, you know, he he was just an incredible showman. I went to one of his films. I don't even know what the film was, but I remember the gimmick. And in that, monsters came out of the screen. All of a sudden, you know, you're watching the movie, and all of a sudden, there's a break in the action, and all these lights and smoke and stuff, and these monsters, four monsters, two on each side. You know, and this was an old, you know, old style theater in downtown Auburn, New York, the the, the Shrine Theater in Auburn. It's still there. I don't know if it's still showing movies or not, but it showed all the big movies that came out. This one, it used to do a lot of the Saturday afternoon and Saturday morning monster movie double features, but they had a, you know, they had a William Castle film and I, I still, I don't know which one it was. Out they came from the, uh, <laughs> from the side of the screens and then they came up the aisles and played around with folks and then ran out of the theater. Like I said, I don't remember the movie, but I sure remember that. William Castle was, was quite a showman. But it wasn't just it wasn't just monster movies that he did because he is uh, he won an Academy Award for doing the producing chores on Rosemary's Baby. So you know, he was a good producer, but he had a way of getting in touch with what people wanted, what would entertain them. He wasn't worried about the fact that the critics were down on monster movies. We've talked about this a whole lot. He just wanted people to be entertained. So, folks, Matinee was the perfect choice. Capsulated who I am and who many of us are. And you hear us talk about, you know, the the nuclear crisis and stuff. You want to really get a, a feel for that and how kids dealt with that back then. You'll have a chance to see it in this movie. I got to tell you one thing, folks. Now, I don't know if this will be your experience or not. I'm sure many of you have seen this movie. I have seen this so many times, and, and I went back and saw it again yesterday because I don't need an excuse to go see this movie. <laughs> I can honestly tell you that I cannot watch this movie without a smile on my face through the whole movie. It's one of the rare movies that does that, and it still hits me emotionally. I'll find myself in some areas starting to tear up a little bit. Yes, because of what it rem- what it reminds me of, of the memories, the great, great memories that I have of this movie and of those and of that time period. 
meant so much. But there was always a smile on my face. Always. Throughout this whole film. And yesterday was no uh, no exception. And the thought of, oh, I want to go back there so badly. This is one of the few times that uh, I keep thinking, oh, if there was a time machine where I could go back and relive some of those moments. They were great moments, even though we were facing total annihilation. I know my my folks were worried about it. The people in the neighbors, the neighbors were worried. You know, this was the time when people were shopping for fallout shelters that you could build in your backyard and or convert your 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 basements into one or whatever. This was a time when in school you had two different kinds of drills. You had fire drills where you all got in a line and, and marched out of the school as quickly as you could without panicking. And you had air raid drills. Where at first, I know when I was in kindergarten and first grade, you would duck under the desks and cover your head, the duck and cover thing. But then in second grade, now, when this film takes place, they changed it up a little bit and said, okay, here's what you're going to do now. You're going to get up in a line and very orderly go out into the hallway, single file along the, uh, the, the walls there where all the lockers are, and get down, hunch over. Cover your head with your hands in a duck and cover. They decided, you know, if they did it did it under the uh, desks in the uh, classroom, that it was too much glass because it was all, you know, it was all all big windows. So at least in the hallway, there was no glass. But, you know, again, if a nuclear bomb went off anywhere near the school, it's all over. <laughs> but, hey, that's, you know, that's what the government told us to do. So we we did it. We believed it. Just don't, you know, you can't look at it. Can't look at the explosion. It'll burn your retinas. You know, it'll blind you. And that's how it was. And that's how it is in this movie. Joe Dante, I know, is a monster kid. And in the film, Simon Fenton playing Gene Loomis, who, who the story sort of centers around. In fact, you know, it's two storylines going simultaneously, and they both center around him. You've got the the Gene Loomis, who's the monster kid, and the big movie Mant is coming to town on a special preview. And in person is going to be a man by the name of Lawrence Woolsey, who is is basically an homage to William Castle, played by the great John Goodman. Perfect casting for this role. He plays it beautiful. I think John Goodman must have been a monster kid, too. Or he must have at least been a fan of William Castle because he channels it. He absolutely nails it. As the huckster who comes into Key West, this all takes place in Key West, Florida. So the closest point to Cuba, yeah, what, a, what a poignant place to be for the Cuban Missile Crisis. So you've got those two storylines going. Cuban Missile Crisis and then uh, Lawrence Wolseley coming with his special film, Mant, for a special one-day preview at the big theater in Key West, Florida. And, they, and the story centers around Gene Loomis, who's a military brat. His father is in the Navy. And his father is called uh, into action with with the other people in the base, and he's on one of the uh, one of the blockade ships. And of course, they don't really know exactly what's going on. Although you know, President Kennedy came on and talked quite a bit with us, and I remember that as a kid, trying to calm us down and explain what they were doing. He wanted to make sure we knew the the danger that was going on that they were dealing with, but also that your government was on the job. 
But for the military families, they weren't really sure about, you know, their relatives who were out there on the ships and called up what, what was going on. But all throughout the movie, we see, you know, on the military base, the defenses, the coast defenses being being bolstered up, the cannons and the machine guns, the anti-aircraft weapons and all that stuff. So it's all pretty tense. And you see a nice trade-off between the people who live in Key West and then those who are involved with the military who live on the base. Because, you know, the city people sometimes don't really relate well with the, you know, with the military people and vice versa. But it, all of a sudden, in, in, in an emergency, everybody comes together. And we've seen that in emergencies throughout our American history, most recently 9-11. Everybody came together on that. And there's days I wish we could come together like that again today. So let's talk a little bit about some of the other people we've talked about, John Goodman and Simon Fenton. Simon's best friend, Stan, is played by Omri Kantz. Omri really had a thing going during this time period. He was on a lot of TV shows, a few movies here and there, very, very popular kid. And he really had hey, he really had a thing going there for, for, oh, I'd say about 10 years. And then he just decided to get away from it. And last we heard that Omri is a, a hairdresser in L.A. He just stopped acting. And, and recently I uh, came across some information that Omri may have uh, even backed off of doing hairdressing and moved to Israel. But I can't confirm that. But last we heard officially, uh, he was a hairdresser in, in Los Angeles. But he had quite a run there. He was one of the hottest kid actors around, you know, in that, you know, the teenage era, you know, around, you know, 15 to 17 year old age, a tough age, tough age if you're an actor, because there's not much out there for you. And he plays, he plays uh, Gene's best friend. We got Kathy Moriarty. And I first saw Kathy and uh, like everybody else in Raging Bull, playing Jake LaMotta's wife, being nominated for an Academy Award. And she's terrific in this. She's the girlfriend of Lawrence Woolsey, and her name is Ruth Corday. Now, I'm going to be mentioning a lot of things, and people are going to say, oh, man, I know what that refers to. There are Easter eggs all throughout this movie, and little inside jokes and stuff. And, of course, the minute you hear the word, the name Corday, and we've talked about this actress, you know, our pop, a popular, popular actress from this time period, she played in a lot of uh, big bug films and big bird films. You remember the giant claw? <laughs> no, we're not going to talk about that one. But she was also in Black Scorpion. But Mara Corday, she also appeared in Playboy in the 50s. Yeah, we were all in love with her. And she plays Ruth Corday in this. And she also plays you know, not only the girlfriend of Lawrence Woolsey, but Ruth Corday, we find out from Gene, is an old horror movie actress. So when he first sees her, he's like, that, that's Ruth Corday. And Lawrence says, oh, yeah. Yeah, she's wonderful. So the names the names that you're going to hear in here, a lot of them are going to have you know, allusions to uh, things that happened during this time period and monster movie things and stuff. And you're going to see a lot of familiar faces from 50s monster movies because Joe Dante was a monster kid. In fact, I, I meant to mention that. We see a scene in here where Gene has got all of these magazines uh, scattered around his room. And they're all famous monsters of Filmland magazines. So he's got, you know, he loves those. Like we all did. We all were into that. And one of them, the one he's reading, he's looking, he's looking for a guy that he saw. And he swears he knows he's an old horror movie actor. 
And of course, he's played by Dick Miller in this movie, our friend Dick. And the magazine that he's looking through is a very special one. And if you're a real, real hardcore film nut or a big Joe Dante fan, you'll know that Joe Dante, as a teenager, wrote to Famous Monsters of Filmland and he, and he, he, he sent them his 50 worst monster movies of all time. And they didn't just blow it off as, oh, that's crazy kid, you know, yeah, that's cute, all that stuff. No, they published it. So, you know, at a very young age, he became officially published by famous monsters of Filmland. That's big time. And as we've seen from other films like The Howling and Gremlins and others, Joe Dante was a monster kid. No doubt in my mind. And one day on my bucket list, I hope I can talk to Joe. I really do. I hope we cross paths somewhere in a uh, in a convention somewhere. Maybe we can get him to Monsterama. I'm surprised we haven't gotten him before. But he's a man I would love to talk to. He's a little older than me, but I got a feeling we've got very similar experiences. Some of the other familiar names you're going to see in here, Kelly Martin. Kelly Martin had quite a run, did a lot of, a lot of family-like oriented films. She played Becca in Life Goes On, which ran for five seasons from 89 to 93. She was on ER for uh, three seasons playing Lucy Knight. And I never saw this one, but the Mystery Woman TV series, although I see a lot of streaming uh, uh, channels are running it again, ran from 2003 to 2007. She played Samantha Kinsey in that. Done a lot for Hallmark and a lot of the family channel movies. Just a really nice, pretty gal. And she plays Sherry, and she is the love of Stan. Stan has just absolutely got a thing for her. He is absolutely bowled over. And that's a little side storyline that keeps keeps developing. Then Lisa Jacob, who plays Sandra, they refer to her as the band the bomb girl because when they're doing their air raid drill out in the corridor. She refuses to cooperate because she says it doesn't do any good. They're just lying to you. Cover your head like that's not going to protect you. I don't know why we're doing this. It doesn't matter. If things blow up around us, it's just going to all be destroyed. <laughs> She's a pretty little young girl. She was only 14 when she did this. She was in Mrs. Doubtfire later this year in 93. And three years from then, we would see her in Independence Day. If you remember uh, Randy Quaid's character, and he had a daughter who uh, one of the young guys was trying to put a hit on because they thought it was the end of the world. Remember that? And they were they were trying to you know get away. So she played uh, she played Alicia in that one. Still acting with us. Had quite a career going all these years. Like I said, very familiar face. Robert Picardo. If you're a Star Trek fan, you'll recognize Robert. Oh, he was in a lot of things though, not just Star Trek. But that's the one a lot of us remember us for. He was the cowboy in Inner Space, the coach in The Wonder Years. He was in China Beach, played one of the officers in that. And then, of course, he was the, you know, the. this is why I always will remember Robert Picardo as uh, being the holographic doctor in Star Trek Voyager. And he also appeared in the in the Stargate franchise, too, so he did some science fiction. Very popular guy. He he has a hysterical role in this, a very, very funny role. It's Howard, who's the manager of the theater that this big monster movie is going to be playing at. And Howard has a bomb shelter in the movie theater. And he's got a, you know, radio that's set to Conrad. Now this is, this is something that some of you that, that weren't alive back then uh, might not relate to, but you know, the big thing back then were transistor radios. Oh man, that was like the state of the art thing. I remember I got a transistor radio uh, in the sixth grade after I finished uh, the sixth grade and was uh, quote unquote graduated from elementary school and was going to high school because I had a, you know, went to a junior senior high school. 
And my dad got me a, a transistor radio because that was the big thing. So you could you know, put it in your pocket and listen to rock music or whatever you wanted to listen to, you know, listen to the World Series. You know, and you had the little earplugs, the little earplug, I should say. And I can remember, uh, and the teachers were pretty cool about this. This was back when World Series games would be during the day. I was a big baseball fan. I'd have my little transistor radio, my little thing in my ear, listening to the ball game about one or two o'clock in the afternoon, because it was near the end of school time anyway. So that, like I said, my teacher was pretty, pretty liberal when it came to that, because they were all interested in the game too. They said, "What's the score? What's the score?" At the time, I was a big Yankees fan, but we weren't in the World Series. But my dad worked for a company that was out headquartered in uh, Minneapolis, so I rooted for the Minnesota Twins too. And they were in the in the World Series a couple of times when I was during this time period. So I, my point, yeah, where I was getting to, I was going to get off my point here for a minute. On the dial of transistor radios and all radios, and my look at old cars, you'll see this. If you look near 6.40 a.m. on the dial, you'll see a little triangle with a little civil defense symbol in it. Now, all radios had it because if there was going to be an attack, if we had an alert, the missiles were on the way. Then all of the radio stations at 640 would go dead and it would be taken over by the government, and that would be the emergency ban, the Conrad ban, where you would get all of your information about what was happening. If there was a nuclear war, that's where you would be getting your information from. So, yeah. Look at some old cars from the 60s and stuff and look at the, uh, if it still has, has the original radio in there, you'll see that. So he's listening to his Conrad because, you know, the, the whole Cuban Missile Crisis, the seven days that that was going on, it was hanging over everybody's head. He's on edge the whole time. We'll also see Lucinda Jenny. She plays Annie Loomis, Jean's mother. Of course, she's worried about her husband. You know, her husband's been called up and he's on one of these ships and they don't know what, what's going to happen. They don't know if he's going to come back or not. We don't know what's going to happen. Lucinda has had a very, very nice career. One thing about Lucinda right now, she's married to Bill Mosley. So those of you who are fans of uh, Bill, big horror film actor, those of us here at Monster Attack had a chance to meet Bill and get to know him pretty well. A few years back, he, he comes to Atlanta quite a bit for uh, the Days of the Dead convention. He and Sid Haig, and Sid was still alive, would come together. Bill's a good guy. Good guy. Played Otis Driftwood in the... Uh, House of a Thousand Corpses and Devil's Rejects and Three from Hell. Jesse Lee plays the little younger brother because Gene's got a little brother. So you've got Gene, who's about 17 in this. And he's got a little brother who's probably about like seven or eight years old. So Gene always has to sort of watch after a little brother. And he's trying to pass the torch like we all did as monster kids. Pass the torch to a younger, a younger relative. I didn't have a younger brother, but I had a nephew down the road. My sister's, uh, my younger sister's uh, first child. So he was the one that I targeted as passing the torch on for monster movies and horror films. And of course, Dennis is still young enough where he still gets, he still gets, you know, nightmares and things that scares him. Jesse Lee uh, was on a, uh, as the world turns and won a couple of daytime Emmys for that. He's also a successful director. I'm still in the uh, still in the business. Another familiar uh, face you'll see is Jesse White, who plays Mr. Spectre, who basically is an homage to Samuel Z. Arkoff of American International Films. He's coming to check out this new film that Woolsey is having this premiere for in uh, Key West to see if he wants to pick it up. 
and distributed. Of course, Jesse White played the Maytag repairman who was so lonely because Maytags never break down that, that whole commercial campaign. But he would show up on a lot of TV shows and in a lot of films here and there. Very, very familiar face. Big character actor. James Villamare, which you might not recognize because really this is his big film. He's only, he's only really known for three films during this time period. But I mention him because his character's name is Harvey Starkweather. And you hear that last name, you go, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> because Starkweather was a name was very much in the news during this time period. There's a fellow by the name of Charles Starkweather and his girlfriend went on a killing spree in the Midwest. He was a major serial killer. So like I said, you're going to see a lot of names that pay homage to things that happened in the news. And then, of course, our band, the Bomb Girl, her father, Jack, is played by David Clennon, still around, a great character actor. We've seen him in a ton of stuff. But I guess for uh, while he was uh, he was in 30-something, played Miles uh, uh, Drenfeld. But I will always remember him as Palmer in John Carpenter's version of The Thing. And he's used quite a bit by films that are directed by Hal Ashby. Hal Ashby really likes the guy. I, I do, too. I think he's a great character actor. And so we'll see him quite a bit. And his wife is played by a gal by the name of Lucy Butler. She plays Rhonda, who's the man, the bomb girl's other, you know, his mother. We don't know much about Lucy Butler. I mean, this is her big film. We don't know. She just sort of dropped out of, out of the business. Other favorites, we mentioned Dick Miller plays Herb Denning. Last name should be familiar. It's an homage to Richard Denning from Creature from the Black Lagoon and, and other, other big films. John Sayles, directed Brother from Another Planet, Matewan, Eight Men Out, Passion Fish. Also a big screenwriter. He got his start as a screenwriter. For monster movie fans, he wrote the uh, screenplay for Alligator and Piranha. <laughs> and, of course, another Corman guy. So, you know, like Joe Dante. See a lot of people in the, involved in this film from the Corman school. Belinda Belaski. Oh, my beloved Belinda Belaski. Play Stan's mom. And, of course, Belinda was a, a, a favorite of Joe Dante. Because I fell in love with her in The Howling. She was in Piranha, Gremlins, Gremlins 2, The New Batch, Small Soldiers. Anytime Dante directed um, episodes or you know segments for Masters of Horror, he usually put Belinda in it. It's a small role, but it's memorable. And I got to tell you, and I mentioned this when I mentioned her in um, in The Howling. First time I saw a matinee, Belinda could change her looks so amazingly that I didn't even know it was her. So after I found out she was in the movie. Playing Stan's mom, then I, every time I'd watch this film, I'd watch her very, very close. And it was the eyes that give it away. She has incredible eyes. Kevin McCarthy shows up as General Ankrum. Now you've heard me talk about Morris Ankrum. That's where they got the name from. General Ankrum is in the movie within the movie. He's the general that's fighting the big ant in Mant. <laughs> of course, we'll always remember, you know, Kevin McCarthy, his big thing will be, they're here, they're here from... Uh, from probably one of the, the, the best monster movies ever made, Invasion of the Body Snatchers. And then when I left for the last, because for the longest time, I did not know she was in this movie. I did not know it. But like I said, there's two movies within a movie in this. So you've got the Mant movie, the monster movie. But then you got a Disney film homage in here. For those who weren't alive during that, it's uh, trying to explain, you know, Walt Disney had you know done all of those great films, like, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea and stuff. So Disney started doing a lot of family fare. Some of it did all right, but you know, nothing, no big blockbusters like they had in those early days. Uh, one that our family especially liked, and my mom loved it, was called That Darn Cat. 
you know, like I said, you know, we would always go to the, the drive-ins whenever dad was in town. And when we were real little, you know, it was a family affair thing. We, I, you know, I mentioned that last week and then. Because when I was a real, real little kid, we had to, had to get, get dressed up in our PJs because we might fall asleep, pack up the station wagon, we go in and, and see it. And that darn cat was a, was a, a favorite of mom's and, and, and ours because it featured a Siamese cat. And mom loved Siamese cats. And because of that movie, she, she went and got a Siamese cat for herself. And we always had Siamese cats for many, many years. In fact, at one time, we raised them. And so this, this movie within a movie was, it was sort of an homage to some of those Disney films that were a little crazy. You know, you, you had the absent-minded professor, you know, Fred McMurray, and, and you had the love bug that came later on and stuff. You know, and a lot of times you would have these inanimate objects that, that were, that took on human characteristics. In this one, the, the movie was called The Shook Up Shopping Cart. Gene's mother says, hey, you got to take your little brother. Take your little brother to go see the movie. He says, oh, man. She says, well, look, you, you know, not every movie has a monster in it, so go take him to see the movie. So they're watching this movie, and there's this pretty blonde woman who's in there, and it's her uncle who is the shopping cart, and he, uh, they, they're getting, she and her boyfriend are getting robbed by these two, you know, obvious, uh, you know, like, like cartoon-type criminals with the, with the goofy masks and stuff, you know, and... Uh, and the shopping cart saves the day <laughs> and it turns into a big slapstick thing. And that's how those movies were. You know, they were just, just really crazy, uh, really crazy films. But the blonde is Naomi Watts, one of her early, early appearances in a motion picture. She's in, in the movie within the movie here in 1993. Had no idea it was her. None whatsoever. Found that out years later, looking through some trivia books, uh, trivia film books. So basically, this whole story centers around this movie coming into town. You've got Dick Miller and John Sayles, who play two tough guys, who say that they're from the uh, you know a decency league. They're handing out these pamphlets, you know, saying you know don't let this guy corrupt your children, you know, the, the whole anti-communist thing. But as it turns out, they're people that were hired by Lawrence Woolsey because they were old actors that he used in his movies. And Gene, of course, figures it out because he sees a picture of Dick Miller's character in one of his famous Monsters of Filmland. And he tells Woolsey when he sees him, he says, hey, isn't that, you know, Herb Denning? And he's like, oh, oh, oh. He says, okay. And 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 Woolsey says, okay, I'm going to trust you again. He tells him how he uses them to get little cities fired up about his movies, sort of bring people in to, to watch them. He says, oh, okay. He says, well, I just want to, I want to just help out. I want to help out. And, he's, and apparently Woolsey's got... He is going all out on this movie. It's like every gimmick, almost every gimmick that William Castle used in a movie is in this one movie alone. You got the seat cushion buzzers. You got something coming out of the screen, a monster coming out of the screen, a guy dressed up like a big ant. Uh, you've got you know flames. You've got smoke. You've got bombs. You've got uh, something he calls Rumble Rama, which is sort of a, an homage to sense around. I remember Sense Around. I don't know if any of you guys remember that. In the 70s, early 70s, when Earthquake and some of those, Earthquake and Midway were two movies I remember that used Sense Around. And I was living in Raleigh, North Carolina at the time, and they were playing at the State Theater. And after, I can't remember which played first, Midway or Earthquake, but it was after one of them, they had to pull the Sense Around out because it was an old theater and it was starting to damage <laughs> the framework of the theater, which sort of happens in this one. 
I'm not going to give you a play-by-play on this, folks, because if you have not seen Matinee, even with some of the stuff I've spoiled here, I really want you to see this film. Because if you're a monster kid, or if you think you're a monster kid, or a new generation monster kid, doesn't matter. Monster kids are monster kids. You're going to smile throughout this whole film. And you're going to be fascinated with what a time capsule it is of how it was back then. And for Dante to set this during the Cuban Missile Crisis is, I think, absolutely inspired. I really do. I think it's absolutely inspired that he picked this venue. Now, originally, the uh, the screenwriter for this film wrote a totally different story. Jericho Stone, uh, the writer, was hired to write the screenplay. So he came up with the original story. And Dante looked at it. And, and it was a story about a bunch of kids who used to hang out in this old movie theater. And then they come back years later and there's things about maybe it's haunted and all that. And, 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 and Dante's like, no, 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 that's not what I want. No. And so he hires a friend of his, Charles S. Haas, he knew from, you know, working with, uh, with Corman. And he sat down and, and sort of gave Haas an idea of what he was looking for. And Haas knew right away. And Haas came up with this script, which thank God he did, because this is a movie that needed to be made. And folks, I'm going to, I'm going to say this movie should never be remade or rebooted. There should be no, no sequels to it. It needs to stand alone. The movie celebrated its 30th anniversary last year, and you're just not going to improve on this movie. It looks beautiful. It's a beautiful film. Film score by Jerry Goldsmith. The music in this is phenomenal. And you're going to hear some of it at the end of this uh, episode. It's just perfect. Now, Joe Dante almost didn't get to make this film. It was, finance, it was, it was budgeted for $13 million. It actually lost money on its first release because it only brought in $9.5 million. And I think the reason was, I don't think it was promoted properly. I mean, Universal Studios was going to distribute it and they were going to throw a little money into it. But the, the company that normally financed Joe Dante's films in the past had gone belly up just before he was going to pull out the cameras and start shooting this. So Dante went on his knees to Universal and said, look, please, please finance this movie. We've got to make this movie. And he talked him into it. And so they put up the full $13 million. And now, look, they did not lose any money overall because this, this is one of those films we talk about. And sometimes a distributor doesn't know what it has. And I don't think it did. This film didn't fall into any particular genre. It's a monster kid movie about monster kids for monster kids. And I don't remember the publicity for this. And, and I should have because John Goodman was on a hot streak during this time period. He was their big star in this. But I don't remember how they promoted this film. And the fact that it only took in $9.5 million in its first release, I think probably points the finger at they didn't promote it properly. Because once word of mouth got out about what this movie really was, it got hot as a bullet. Now, I didn't see this movie in the theater. This movie came out on video pretty quickly. Released in the theater in January of 1993. And by 1994 and early 1995, it was already out on VHS. And I got my first uh, VHS, uh, my first uh, VCR right around the end of 1993. And this, this movie was one of the first ones I rented. This is even before Blockbuster. I mean, it's uh, in, in in the town. You know, I was living in a little town up there in Georgia where I moved moved from when I came down here to Atlanta when I was living out in the country. 
I had a couple of little mom and pop video stores I went into. And I saw this sitting there. I said, yeah, wait a minute. I sort of remember some talk about this movie. So I'm going to rent it. It looks interesting. And I was blown away. Watching it one night alone in my room. Blown away when I saw what this movie was. Oh, my God. Joe Dante spied on my life. So over the years, this movie did well. It did make money. On home video, Still, it's still making money because if you're going to watch this on streaming, you're going to pay for it. You're going to pay like $4 for it on Amazon. It's worth it. I know I'm not a shill for, for Amazon. And folks, like I said, if you haven't seen Matinee from 1993, it's an incredible movie. If you're a monster kid like me, if you're my age, you already know about this movie, I'm sure. If you're younger than me, have a run up on it. Please do. Because we've got a lot of young monster kids that listen to Monster Attack. And this movie will let you, make you feel good again. You know, we're living in a time right now that, and again, I almost got political last week, and I got to be careful, but things are pretty negative right now. Everybody's at each other's throats, and of course, we've got a presidential campaign going on, so there's terrible stuff going on, and shouting back and forth, the lies and all that stuff. Hey, you know, I want to get away from that. This is a good movie to do that. You'll smile through the whole movie. And look closely, because there's a lot of homages and Easter eggs and little gags and jokes and inside things that I haven't even mentioned yet. There's a lot to find in this. And it is a good encapsulation of what 1962 was all about. Now, you'll hear people talk about it, how wonderful things were during this time. Well, I have fond memories of it, but still, we had issues you know, wondering when we were all going to die. We just accepted it. But this movie, uh, even yesterday, just had me smiling throughout. And then I would have flashes of, of uh, memories from this time period that would bring a little tear to my eye during the movie, thinking, oh, my God, what great times those were. You know, I was eight years old. Then the second grade, the time the Cuban Missile Crisis was going on, I was getting ready to start the third grade carefree. All I had to worry about was what monster movie was going to be on Saturday afternoon, maybe Saturday night, what monster model I was going to build next. I was playing a little baseball back then in Pony League. I think I was just old enough to play Pony League. I wasn't a good baseball player, so I didn't play for very long. <laughs> I mean, I could play pickup games, but I, I wasn't good for organized baseball. I was just one talented. My sport was soccer and basketball. We had all the kids in the neighborhood, and, you know, at night we would be out there playing kick the can or hide and seek or whatever. And then during the summer, there were the times at the lake with my cousins up there. Those were great times. Just wonderful, wonderful times in this film brought all of that back. And it might for you, too. You don't necessarily have to be my age to get that from this film. You know, Gene Loomis was, you know, not only he, he was sort of the oddball at school because he was a military kid. You know, the city kids, you know, uh, Stan was the only one that paid attention to him, and they became very good friends. The other kids just sort of held him at arm's length because he was a military kid. Although when they found out his father was on one of the ships, they warmed up to him a little bit. Because that brought everybody together. It really did. And that was another thing that I really liked about what I saw in this movie. But he was also an oddball because, you know, the, the kids were talking about, hey, this movie Mant is coming into town, and they were talking about... Oh, that guy that makes those scary movies. And then Loomis is like, yeah, Lawrence Woolsey. And, and all of a sudden they go, wow, you know all this stuff? And he's like, oh, yeah. That's how I was as a kid. 
You know, if it was something about a monster movie or monsters in general, you ask Jimmy. <laughs> he was the monster kid. That's not what we were called back then. But he says, yeah, he knows about that stuff. I don't claim to be an expert, folks. But, you know, I watched a lot of monster movies, so I knew a lot about them and the people who made them. So all of that rang a bell with me, and it probably will with you, too, if you were a monster kid like that. You know. And for the longest time, we were sort of the oddballs. I was a science geek. I was a nerd before that became acceptable again. Or not again, but just acceptable. I smiled throughout this whole thing. I smiled through the whole thing. And you will too. Matinee of 1993, episode number 400. Monster Attack. Folks, thank you for allowing me the privilege of being your host for what has been an incredible journey in my life with this with this podcast. And I can't promise you how much longer we'll be going with it, but I'm going to keep giving it my best all the way as long as we can. As long as there are monster movies to talk about, there will always be Monster Attack. So for all of you who are monster kids, and for all of you who will be monster kids, and for all of you who want to be monster kids or maybe don't even know you're going to be monster kids, this one's for you. Have a great week, folks. And we'll see you next Monday with an all-new episode of Monster. All right, monkeying around, start talking. Mr. About your podcast. We talk about an Emmy-winning comedy series. We talk about a band who outsold the Beatles and the Stones in 1967. Still sticking to that story, huh? Well, if you know what's good for you, you'll change your tune. We talk about a groundbreaking multimedia project. That inspired generations of artists and fans. All right, throw the book at them. This book is overdue. Monkeying Around, a podcast about the monkeys. This has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping for the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.